This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning into UBS Global Research Podcast, a channel that shares insights from economists, strategists, and equity analysts on the pivotal questions and events shaping today's markets. My name is Pablo Villanueva, and I am a senior economist at UBS. In this episode, the U.S. Econ team will be walking through our outlook on the U.S. economy in 2022. I am joined by our chief U.S. economist, Jonathan Pingel, along with our two senior economists, Andrew Dobinsky and Samuel Coffin. I would like to kick off the discussion with our outlook, which we published on November 9th. Jonathan, what are the main highlights of what we expect for next year for the U.S. economy? The key components of the projection are an expectation that we uh, will sustain a strong economic backdrop, um, but over the course of next year, see easing inflation, uh, retreating COVID, uh, very strong household balance sheets, uh, and very accommodative monetary policy should propel uh, above trend growth for the next few years. Uh, we assume the fiscal packages trail off, but do back are backfilled somewhat uh, by new legislation we're expecting to be passed uh, later this year. Strong capex, but I think the uh, the crux of 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 our call and of our rates view. Um, is our inflation projection, where we expect um, above consensus, elevated, strong inflationary pressures uh, through the end of this year. Uh, but as we roll through 2022 and we see bottlenecks, supply chain pressures even easing, um, and some other um, you know, compositional effects in spending, for example, uh, we expect uh, inflation to moderate noticeably and end next year uh, going from above consensus uh, to noticeably below consensus uh, in 2022. Thank you very much. And now let's uh, let's go through all of these items one by one. I want to start with Sam. Sam, what are the key drivers of growth next year? And is there going to be a ch- changing composition of consumption? What are we expecting in general? Yeah, so we're expecting pretty solid consumption growth, not quite as strong as this year, uh, and and a pickup in business investment. Within consumption, we are expecting rotation away from goods and towards services. Uh, goods were propelled upwards very strongly by the, by the pandemic. Uh, people shifted their their households shifted their wallet share towards goods away from services. Uh, we expect that to begin to reverse more convincingly as uh, COVID retreats. We've already seen some of that in the third quarter. For example, uh, goods spending was down at a nine percent annual rate, while services were rising at an eight percent rate and we expect continued rotation in that direction away from goods towards services in 2022. That should also take some pressure off of goods inflation next year. On business investment, we've been expecting that as the labor market tightens, there will be continued pickup in fixed investment. And we gain confidence in that view in looking at the regional Fed surveys of manufacturing and of CapEx intentions, which have been very strong. Along with their pickup in in hiring intentions, you've seen a strong pickup in intentions to do capital spending. Yeah, we actually published our uh, tracking of those forward CapEx indicators on the very first page of our November 9th Outlook piece. And it has been running at essentially the strongest levels or the highest levels um, in recent decades. 
I, I think this 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 are this is an indicator that it's I think a bit underappreciated in the market commentary. I haven't seen this being flagged that much by by other economic uh, analysts, and I think it's a, a, an important phenomenon to watch, especially now that, as we will discuss later, there has been a little bit of higher inflation because of this lack of supply. So this forward-looking capex indicator suggests that actually supply is going to be coming over the coming months. Well, maybe not over the coming months. I mean, capex is capex is a positive story, but we've also got you know President Biden signed the infrastructure plan into law. Um, you know that will be you know another addition to domestic investment, um, and these things in general are going to be good for productivity growth. And we've got reasonable productivity growth in our projections. Certainly, certainly better than what was seen in the years following uh, the GFC. Thank you very much. And I think this point that you make about the the infrastructure building science very important. And given this, it's, I think it's a good segue to pass it as a discussion to Andrew. Andrew, what was in, in, included in this fiscal package? And there's an, another package being discussed by con Congress on social spending. What are our expectations for the next few weeks? Right, so we are very closely watching uh, both of these packages. So the bipartisan infrastructure bill was just signed and it has around $550 billion of new spending over the next 10 years, and it's spending on a range of projects, roads, other types of transportation projects, the power grid, water infrastructure, so a lot of projects, uh, which, uh, which is good news for you know, longer-term growth, but it does take a little while for that spending to get uh, picking up, to, for the, to start to play out in the economy. And so the other part of the fiscal view is this reconciliation package which uh, we think will have around $1.5 trillion of new spending over the next 10 years. And that's gonna be more on human infrastructure, uh, childcare policies, and uh, more clean energy uh, investment. And we're watching that closely. That's still being debated in Congress. And there's a lot of votes that we're gonna be watching both in the House and the Senate. Excellent, thank you very much. Are, are there important risks that this Build Back Better plan, this social spending plan, is not passed, or do we have a kind of high conviction that we're going to see something later this year? So our base case is that it will pass, uh, but it is, uh, it's going to be challenging because in both the House and the Senate, the, the margins are pretty tight. Obviously, the Senate is tied at 50-50. Uh, and you know, a couple moderate senator, senators have made it very clear what their red lines are in terms of costs, uh, and we're still waiting for cost estimates from the CBO. Uh, and there's also red lines on, uh, on tax policy as well as the mix of spending. So it, it's, it's, it could still be challenging for everybody to agree within those 50 senators. Uh, and then also in the House, the, the margins are narrow as well. Uh, Speaker Pelosi can only lose a handful of votes. And if the legislation changes, uh, she might lose either progressives or moderates. So it's, it's definitely not a done deal. It's our base case, but it's uh, you know moderate risk of not happening. What would happen to our projections, say, of GDP if this deal did not materialize? Well, so we know we have the uh, bipartisan bill pa uh, passed, so we can keep that in our projections, but the risk of the reconciliation bill failing could shave off 50 basis points or so off 22 growth. Uh, it's a big offset to all the stimulus that's been passed in the past couple of years, so definitely a downside risk to growth. I mean, a, a key question that we have been receiving lately regarding these fiscal packages is how are, the, are these going to impact the deficit? And interestingly, 
not that much. Our estimate is that both packages will increase the deficit by around 600 billion between 2022 and 23 total. So actually an, an interesting situation next year is that the fiscal deficit is going to come down significantly. Our estimate is that in 21 calendar year, the fiscal deficit is gonna end up being around $2.7 trillion. For next year, our forecast is around $1.6 trillion. So, so quite a decline of over a trillion dollar in the deficit that it's- It's a pretty meaningful drop. Pretty meaningful drop. And it's uh, one of the, um, the reasons we, we expect a negative fiscal impulse next year. So it, interestingly, the fiscal piece is, is going to end no, no longer be a boost to growth as it was in 2020 and 21, and it's going to, going to actually be a drag on growth. And this has also implications for debt issuance. We already saw in on November 3rd, Treasury started cutting the, the amount of coupon issuance of medium and long-term notes and bonds that it issues to the market. So an interesting phenomenon that's going to happen next year is that despite the Fed taper, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. Despite the fact that the Fed is buying, uh, is going to gradually decrease the amount of treasuries it buys, the treasury is going to cut the amount of treasuries it supplies, it issues quite significantly. So overall, the amount of duration that the private sector will need to absorb next year will come down by more than 20%. So quite a significant reduction in, in supply of treasuries next year. Now that we have discussed the uh, consumption, CapEx, the fiscal outlook, I think we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is inflation. Uh, it's in everybody's minds, not only of economists' minds, but everybody I talk to, even in my social conversations, are talking about inflation. Uh, what's our view for next year, Jonathan? <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing like a whopping CPI print to focus the mind, huh? Yeah, so when we think about inflation, you know, we, you know, we we think that there there's still a substantial amount of inflationary pressure to be revealed in data as we head through the end of the year. Um, you know, that's sort of been you know our call, Alan's call. Um, you know, we expect a strong above consensus inflation. Uh, but we expect that to flip essentially to and have inflation fall noticeably below consensus as we move through the course uh, of 2022. Uh, several reasons for that. We're expecting some labor supply repair. We're expecting uh, some easing of the supply chain strains and bottlenecks. And as Sam had said earlier, we're expecting a rotation uh, in spending from uh, goods uh, back to services. That should help ease, you know, some of the uh, relative demand for goods uh, that has that has actually, you know, been a, a big source of, of these bottlenecks. Has been that, you know, unusually elevated uh, demand, and we are seeing, you know, some some signs of support of that view. Um, you know, forward indicators of, you know, rent price growth uh, have rent price growth uh, have slowed. Um, steel, uh, some, some, some transport costs have ebbed, um, and our equity, equity uh, autos team under Patrick Hummel have seen you know, some signs for hope um, in, the, in, the chip supply, in the chip supply chain that has really held down uh, auto production and that, you know, that relative boost in goods for autos and used cars and the lack of supply has been 
you know, big part of the inflationary pressures uh, that we've seen. You know, we're, we're seeing as a result of, you know, some of this easing, auto production schedules point to increases in the coming months. Um, and that's been kind of ground zero for, for the inflationary inflationary pressure. So, you know, as we see these easings, we expect the inflation data, you know, to come off the boil. A lot of these prices that have moved up a lot, if they stop going up, the inflation collapses to zero. Um, so we're expecting um, a general easing of core PCE inflation uh, back under the Fed's uh, 2% target uh, in 2022. Thank you. I mean, a key, a key question, of course, here, it's timing, right? And um, it seems from my, what I hear you, it seems that we have more, a bit more confidence on inflation actually coming down eventually than on the actual timing, timing which this will happen. Is, is this a correct assessment? Oh, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the timing's tricky. I mean, uh, you, know, you know, we've been talking about this a lot. I mean, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't be lost on us that, you know, we've, you know, the inflation projections revisions have just generally been, you know, kind of upward. And the expectations of these supply chain bottlenecks easing has generally been uh, continually pushed out, look, outward. Now, we are seeing some signs that this, this is, you know, actually materializing at this point, but it's not... It's not actually data in hand. So, so, so getting the timing of when this wave of inflation finally crests, um, you know, is extremely difficult. You know, we think it's going to crest this winter, you know, and the wave then is going to, you know, crash um, as we roll through 2022. But obviously, that's, that's, a, that's a big risk. I mean, and, and it's also a big risk, uh, you know, for our Fed view and for the view of some FOMC participants. And I'll come back to with the Fed in, in a few minutes. But before we do that, I'd like to go to the other part of the Fed's Monday, the labor market. Uh, and for here, I'm going to hand it off to Andrew. Andrew, it seems like the employment growth this year surprised a bit to the downside relative to expectations back in, in early 21, especially once we knew that the vaccine was going to be widely available. What do you think have been the main factors holding back job growth? Well, I don't think we expected the Delta wave to be as disruptive as it turned out to be. Uh, so we have the direct effect of the virus keeping people from working. And then we have indirect effects like uh, COVID risk aversion, child care shortages. Uh, and there's also the, you know, the labor supply effects from the people who have accumulated a lot of savings from those household transfers that were you know, pretty generous during the the, uh, those different stimulus packages. So I think all those together perhaps contributed to a little bit less job growth than we were expecting, perhaps others too. I mean, a key, a key factor that, that people have been mentioning lately is labor force participation rate is really depressed. It's literally in October 21 at the same level it was on October 20, 2020, 12 months earlier. Despite vaccine availability, despite more control over the virus, despite some normalization of activity, uh, people are simply not coming back to the labor market. Uh, what do you think is going to happen over the next uh, 12 to 24 months? Well, we're pretty optimistic over the next year that we will see a lot of these prime age workers that have dropped out to return. A lot of these people uh, are uh, don't have a bachelor's degree, so we're pretty skeptical that they have the financial resources to you know, stay on the sidelines for, for a long time. And I think the longer we have uh, the virus under control, the more comfort people will have with um, 
returning to work and being less concerned about childcare disruptions. So we're expecting a one percentage point increase in the participation rate from uh, you know many different cohorts. Just to put this into perspective, uh, this increase that Andrew is mentioning about implies four million people increase in the size of the labor force. Just to put this in context, this is in the previous decade, the largest one year increase we saw in the size of the labor force was two and a half million people. And in the 70s, when the, the people, the, the baby boomers were joining the workforce, the increase in the size of the labor force was close to four million. So quite comparable to, them, to, the, to the number we're thinking for next year. This is not only um, taking into account the, the labor force participation shortfall, but also some population growth that, that is going to happen over the next 12 months. So a pretty sizable increase in labor supply is what we're expecting. Uh, if that happens, what would be the implication of wage growth, Andrew? I mean, the, the recent employment cost index for Q3, Q3 was like uh, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly would say, eye-popping. Um, when many people are saying that this wage growth is going to eventually lead to higher inflation, what are our, what, what are our views on the topic? Well, yeah, we've seen some pretty strong uh, wage growth numbers this year, particularly amongst uh, jobs that tend to have lower wage levels. We're expecting that as we get this increase in labor supply, we're going to get, we're going to see a deceleration in wage growth by about a percentage point or more, depending on which measure you look at. Uh, average hourly earnings, which isn't compositionally adjusted, will reflect the return of a lot of lower paid service jobs. So we could see a bigger deceleration there. But the, yeah, that's the view is that the bottlenecks which have uh, boosted wage growth this year should ease and facilitate fa you know, pretty fast job growth from a relative to trends and a deceleration in wages. Thank you very much. Uh, and finally, the, the, probably the most important thing watch by topic watched by clients is the, the Fed. Jonathan, given this backdrop, what do we expect uh, from the Fed uh, in, in 22? Well, I, you know, thinking about the you know, contour of inflation, and not just the inflation projection itself, but of course all of the associated um, measures of whether it's confidence or other pressures, you know, you know we're expecting that to remain pretty hawkish, actually, into the winter, and we're expecting a relatively hawkish uh, summer of e summary of economic projections at the December FOMC meeting, where we're expecting an upward revision um, to the dots, you know, the median dots, um, and the assumptions of appropriate policy in 2022, and an upward revision in 2023. But, you know, we're expecting a pretty fair rolling over um, of the inflation data, and essentially, we think that will, you know, bolster. Um, or, or, or vindicate, you know, the FOMC participants that have argued for more patience um, at recent meetings and in, and in recent communications. At, at a sort of most basic level, you know, our expectation is that, you know, like the low dots you saw in the September SEP, you know, the inflationary pressures would come off the boil and then the committee could Kind of refocus itself on its broad-based uh, and inclusive definition of maximum employment. Feeding into that, we're expecting, uh, you know, almost historic amount of of turnover uh, at the Federal Reserve. You know, as we've we've written, we're waiting for a um, a decision on Chair Powell's reappointment. Um, but you know that that focus, you know, 
perhaps is obscuring the fact that, you know, Quarrel, you know, Vice Chair Quarrel stepping down frees up an open seat. There's a vacant seat, and uh, Vice Chair Clarida's term ends at the end of January. That's three seats on the Board of Governors um, that the administration could choose to fill in the coming months. Um, plus, there are two regional regional Fed presidents that um, will 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 be taking their seats sometime in uh, 2022. New new regional Fed presidents in Boston and Dallas. And altogether, those five participants, we would we would expect to be, you know, more attuned and probably more attuned to and set a higher bar for um, the maximum, the threshold for meeting uh, the maximum employment mandate, which is a condition for uh, for the first rate hike, according to the guidance. So, you know, we'll have we'll have five members um, that we think are going to be five participants that are going to be more like members, participants, participants that are going to be more like uh, that sort of low batch of dots we saw uh, in the September SEP. And that with inflation coming off the boil, we think will give the, the Fed patience to wait and see, you know, how, how, how they can watch the labor market improvement through 2022 and put off raising rates until 2023. Excellent. And the, the other part of the, um, the Fed's toolkit is the balance sheet that in, on November 3rd, the Fed announced that uh, starting in mid-November, it would start buying a lower amount of, of, of treasuries each month. Um, it's expected under this pace that they announced, the QE would go to zero sometime in mid-June. And there's been a lot of talk lately in the market on whether that taper pace could be accelerated. Do we see this happening? Is this a real risk? Well. It's a risk. <laughs> I mean, they could do anything they want, but I, I, I think it's a relatively. I think it would be. I think. I think it's a. The, the committee would set a relatively high bar for doing so. It, it's not. It's not really clear uh, what that optionality buys them, and it's not. It wouldn't be costless, right? If we think about the academic literature on large-scale asset purchases, most of those papers admit. Part of the easing value of that tool um, is the signaling value that gets reinforced for the front end policy rate. Um, to pull forward taper, um, you know, would erode some of that signaling value. And you know, this is a committee that may need to actually face another recession sometime in the years ahead. And with a limited toolkit, um, might have some concern over it. And that's certainly the kind of concern um, that a staff briefing would incorporate. Um, in, in outlining the options the committee might face. Um, you know, two other things. One reason, you know, I don't think they, they would necessarily do it is because they've got other tools to do it that, you know, they can, you know, signal turning towards, um, you could imagine pretty hawkish dot plots. Um, you know, they could signal turning towards raising rates quickly and more rapidly. You could imagine um, them trying to price more hikes into the forward curve. Um, and doing so both through rhetoric um, and what you might say and say the the, the March um, summary of economic projections. Um, it's also they do need to, you know, before they turn to raising rates, they also do need to make a credible case that they are at maximum employment. And you know, if you look back at past hiking cycles and when they've had liftoff, you know, there's going to be a limit to either the employment shortfall uh, that they could, you know, sort of justify. Um, and, 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 and they would need to meet that too. And in our projection, you're not going to be close to meeting that really until the middle of the year anyway. So, so for those three reasons, I think there's probably a relatively high bar for accelerating the taper. Um, and it's also questionable if they really did feel behind due to the inflation data. It's also questionable how much 
additional tightening and financial conditions, simply speeding up the taper, uh, would actually add, you know, relative to to some of the other tools. Um, so I, I think they stick with the plan, and I think there's probably good reason to stick with the plan. And I think in the end, they'll probably see that too. Thank you. And, and finally, what's the main risk to our Fed call? You've been mentioning in previous publications that we have a little bit of a bimodal situation. Uh, what happens if we're wrong on inflation? Even if in the end inflation does come back, if we're wrong by two or three quarters. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think it is kind of bimodal. I mean, if 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 those low dots are vindicated um, and, and can really make the case that the inflationary pressures are transitory and that um, combined with some new membership, the committee should spend some more time repairing the labor market. You, know, you could see a quite patient committee, which is kind of our view. But you know, as as we just talked about the inflation risks, you know, we, we we're not we're not we're not blind, right, to where to where those risks lie. And and obviously the you know the persistence of these elevated inflation readings, it's just going to erode the ability of those FOMC participants to really make the case that it's transitory. So we look at the taper as kind of a you know soft window um, for evaluating the inflationary pressures. It's probably you know no accident that. Chair Powell said in his press conference after the November FOMC meeting that um, you know we'll learn a lot about the economy in the first half of next year. Um, you know it's probably not an accident that that lines up with the taper. And you've heard similar comments out of some other FOMC um, participants. So you know given that you know they've got this window to evaluate you know whether or not the inflationary pressures subside. Um, and if they don't, and it continues, and it continues for longer than we expect. Um, you're probably going to get a committee that turns towards raising rates uh, pretty quickly after the end of taper. Um, so, I mean, that's certainly a risk to our call. I mean, you know, we think they can end up being vindicated and be patient. And if you look at our inflation projection, there's not a lot of cost um, to waiting. Um, but, you know, if, if you're sitting in June of next year and <laughs> inflation is still coming in at a very elevated monthly run rate, uh, continuing to argue that the inflationary pressures are transitory is just going to be impossible. Thanks, Jonathan. That's very insightful. Thank you for visiting the UBS Research Pod Hub. That was a brief overview of our outlook on the U.S. economy and how we see it shaping up throughout 2022. Tune in again for more investment insights. Thank you. This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries, and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content. It has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regulatory, or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2021.
The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS, all rights reserved.